Chapter 10 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. How those who lose themselves often find something more valuable. That light did lead me on, more surely than the shining of noontide, where well I knew that one did for my coming bide, where he abode might none but he abide. St. John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul Nothing would do but they must go, all three of them, into the heart of the fells and qualify the distant glamour of the familiar touch. The village produced a rough cart and a short thick pony of the kind that embarks willingly upon cross-country exploration, and they were off in the vivid afternoon through the tangle of dark woods and bright cornfields which lay between them and the road that runs along the hills. There was a little stirring breeze, and the pale green barley danced in the wind with a delicate airy ecstasy as they passed, so that the watcher in his nest reached out to this new loveliness with a gesture that was almost adoration. The oats, faintly blue with aquamarines, seemed of a more sober habit. They made minuet steps, with tiny tossings of the head. The deeper blue of the turnip fields brought inappropriate hints of the wild ocean to the least idyllic processes of agriculture. Behind, the stately hills marched with them, on one hand the sharp lake mountains, on the other the fells. Presently they plunged to the lowest point of the valley, a little breathless, I think, because of their apprehension of the beauty that they might find for this was a wonderful day on which anything might happen and the least credible of discoveries might be made. They swung through space on a jeweled planet, and it was for them that the caskets were flung opened and the secret gems disclosed. They crossed the beck where it ran through deep hayfields to the river beyond, a little eager splashing thing that called all other children to join in its play. There was a heavenly inflorescence at its margin, all made up of those very simple plants which are too dignified and too beautiful to compel the casual eye. It was the watcher who called his friend's attention to the dear golden fluff of yellow bedstraw and to the woundwort and betony standing up like purple spears in the soft grass. Then, because her eyes were directed to that marvellous and incomparable population, she saw with his delight to help her vision the dyer's greenwood, disowned plantagenet, and the towering wild angelica whose mighty branches hint of old forests made of flowering things. And since respectability is no more the norm of hedges than of human life, she saw also the ivory crown of the meadowsweet that fascinating child of joy whose daintiness in the eyes of the marigolds is very certainly the measure of her sin. There they were, in their essential reality, their unsullied radiance, matter for the exploration of many eons tossed into the pageant of one sunny afternoon. Because he was unaffected by man's arrogant standard of size, the watcher was at once satisfied and subjugated by this luxuriant outpouring of beauty. It woke the slumbering virtue of humility and washed his eyes so that he caught, as it were, a sidelong glimpse of God. 
It was a definitive hour for both of them, this first sight of the flowered meadows of the north. There, life clothes herself in haste and rushes out to meet the sun in her short moment of fertility. And hence the significant personalities of the plants assert themselves as nowhere else in the full splendor of their triumphant individuality. They blaze forth and hit the heart which opens itself to receive that holy wound. They climbed from the valley to dusty roads that ran between stone walls. There they saw the Lady of the Hills, the great wild Cranesbill, lifting her blue patten to the sky. Constance began to wonder why she had so long neglected the easy and perfect friendship of the flowers. It raised the heart to some lucent and gentle plane of being, beyond the fevers and anxieties of human intercourse. So dreaming, she allowed the pony to ramble at loose, rain among the tangled roads. Life seemed divine. The future mattered little. She was invaded by the consciousness of heavenly peace. Vera had left the cart to make dashes into hedge, ditch, and by-path, clutching vainly at scuttling beetles and nimble flies. She was at her best under these circumstances of action, there the animal aspect seemed in place, and nature justified the coarse and tireless frame. They came presently to a gap in the stone wall and a wheel-track that went, as it seemed, directly to the fells. Constance, who had the Londoner's shadowy belief that all roads lead, somehow, to the right way, divined in this byway the shortcut which her landlord had described to her as going back toward the village by way of the hills. She turned the cart into the short, rough grass, and they trundled slowly in and out of ruts and through gates and by deep, dark bracken that stretched clawing fingers up the side of the sage-colored hill. Soon they were a long way from all roads and other memories of civilization, being, indeed, upon an outpost of the fells. The sun sloped, twilight began to come but there was no hint in their vague and wandering path of a return to human habitations. The pony lost his eager and exploratory manner. He lingered and stopped doubtfully. The sun went, and a chill came to the air. Then Vera, a little way ahead, stopped to cry, Tanta, make the pony come quicker. He's going dreadful slow. It's dark and nasty, and I want my tea. Constance answered, I'm afraid he is getting tired and wants a rest, Vera said with petulance. Horrid little horse! He shan't be tired. He's ours. He got to go. I want my tea. Then Constance, dragged back to the unlovely cares of common sense, halted, looked round, and noticed for the first time their solitary position, the woman and child and the weary little animal, with the great and pathless earth stretching from them on every side, rough, billowy, and very desolate. She forgot that they had come but a few miles from the road. She had no knowledge of the quarter in which the destination lay. She did not mind, for they had achieved the object of their expedition, hidden in the hills. Already ancient mysteries peeped from the stunted bushes, whispering fragments of the primeval ritual of the wild. Anything might stir and rise suddenly in the break, for if conscious life were concealed there, it was a life, she felt sure, far removed from the human plane. The watcher said, 
It is well to be here. One discerns again the music of the stars. Her peaceful heart repeated, It is well. She was brought to a new place, immersed in a new experience, and that contented her. But Vera was not content. She flung herself into the card, crying querulously, Do let us go home. I'm tired. I want my tea. I think it is a very nasty drive. Then Constance suggested to the pony that his respite was at an end, but the encouraging rain and very gentle lash had no effect on his tired limbs and stubborn mind. He hung his head and planted his feet more firmly on the ground. She said, I am afraid we must let him rest a little more. Vera stamped her foot and cried, I won't, I shan't, I hate him, I want to go home to my tea. She dashed from the cart and into the bracken, snatched a loose stick which lay there, and hit the wearied pony with all her angry strength across its ears. It leapt forward, and Vera jumped into the rocking cart, crying gaily, There, he only wanted hitting. I knew I'd make him go. The pony went indeed, a poor, bothered, fevered thing, blindly and without sense of direction. It ran with a sort of convulsive strength, with miserable shudderings and settings back of ears. So they were flung into hollows and up little hills, jerked this way and that. Constance had the reins, but her strength was no match for a frightened moorland pony who sensed the neighborhood of the fell. She put her arm firmly about Vera and resigned herself to the event. During a period that seemed infinite, the cart raced through the twilight, tilting, leaping, twisting, but by some miracle never overturned. They fled past a swift dissolving vista of immense gray fields, looming trees and shadowy corners, and past a sudden black pine wood, a thing of terror in the dusk. Far off they saw white roads that rushed from an invisible highway into the heart of a dim, failed land. Far up they saw the fell, but they were caught in the debatable land between the two, and in this situation there seemed for them no hope. Then one of the great limestone boulders that push out from the earth on the lower slope stood suddenly in their path, and the dazed and worried pony could not elude it. Almost before the peril reached their minds, one wheel met the obstacle with a crash. The cart tried to mount it, failed, tottered, and was overturned. Constance and the child half leapt, half tumbled from the low seat to the ground. There they lay, huddled in a bewilderment that excluded the more natural sensations of despair. Amidst a litter of broken shafts, a wheel torn from its axle, and a pony which was kicking its way to freedom as quickly as it might. Constance rose, shook herself, and examined Vera. Routine took charge of her, and she acted without thought and therefore with decision. The child was sobbing with fear, anger, and fatigue, but she was unhurt. Constance, suddenly alert to the realities of the situation, said to her, Stop crying, get up quickly, it's nearly dark and we have got to find our way home. She went to the crestfallen and panting pony, extricated his limbs from the entangled harness, took a handful of bracken, and rubbed him down. She said to Vera, I'm going to put you on the pony. Don't be frightened. Hold tight, and let him go the pace he likes. You will have a lovely ride, just like a grown-up lady, 
and we shall soon find a cottage to get tea. She dared not to ask herself yet in which direction she should go to find it, or what were her chances of success, for their course had been a twisted one with doubling to and fro and the tracing of wild circles, and she had no knowledge of the sky to help her. At this instant the voice of the watcher said urgently, The light! We must go to the light! Then she looked up and saw with deep thankfulness a little sharp star that had flashed into being and shone low down in the hills. Unquestionably it called to them, offering at least a certainty of human life. It was no great matter to quiet the pony, and place Vera upon his back, she did it, and set out to wander up the pathless fell without any sensation of anxiety. She was still sustained by the mystic's delightful conviction that nothing really matters in the least. "'What funny little things happen to us,' said the watcher, "'and what infinite shades of experience you have packed within the limits of this dream. I like these dark and lonely places where the foolish, bustling people never come.' She might have agreed with him, for indeed the wild and darkling earth about them cried messages of wonder to the eager mind. But the vague and crescent miseries of a cross-country walk unwillingly undertaken in the dusk, quelled her thirst for adventure. She was hardly in training, and sooner than she had thought it possible she grew breathless. Breathlessness brought in its train indifference, fatigue, at last, exasperation. The approach to the light was very long. As they went it seemed to retreat from them into the bosom of the hills, it led them upwards with many miserable slippings and scramblings on the dried heather, sudden sinkings into bracken and clambering up harsh and disconcerting stones to a saucer-like valley scooped out from a spur of the fell. There its presence seemed to create a greater darkness, a terrible and mysterious gloom. There were two little hillocks at the entrance, guarding perhaps the citadel of some primeval and inhuman life the watcher whispered, "'Press on, press on, we are drawing very near.' He was like a hound upon the scent, eager, excited, but she could not respond. She stood dissociated from him at this moment and felt the lonelier for his evident air of being at home. She was invaded, too, by a panic terror, for there was nothing in her past experience which could help her in dealing with the circumstances of this hour. A hare sat sentinel on one of the little hillocks, it moved as they came up to it, and Vera screamed. That scream made their condition seem unsafe, but they plodded on. When they were come a little farther, they saw beyond the saucer-like valley a narrower crevice in the hill, and within it the dark shape of a building, and the slit of radiant window which had been their guiding light. It was the child, sharp-eyed, who exclaimed with a sob of rage and hunger, "'Oh, Tanta, how perfectly hateful! It's only a church, after all!' Constance, then, was aware of a certain sinking of the heart and a sense of helplessness, a distrust of her situation, which the unpeopled hills had been powerless to induce. The fears of the traveller faded before the fears of the lost. Man had been there and left his mark, and was a hieroglyphic that she had no skill to read. But the watcher still cried, Go to the light, it is real, it calls us. You cannot, you must not retreat. That drove her on, and she led the pony up the last slopes of heather 
to the little limestone chapel which stood solitary on its knoll. There was a sudden uprising of shadowy gray forms from under the wall as they came to it, and a hoarse cry and a scuttering in the dusk which jarred her weary nerves and brought strange choking sensations to her throat. Then the frightened sheep ran toward the hills, and they were again alone. The door of the place was shut, and through the keyhole that mysterious light looked out on them. She was past further adventure, and when her first casual exploration failed to discover the latch of the door, she abandoned it. The watcher murmured, This is a place of safety, all is well. But her heart did not echo his words. Because there seemed nothing else to do, she lifted Vera from the depressed and weary pony. It rambled a yard or so away, stopped and began to crop at the short grass. Presently it turned the corner of the church and disappeared. A man came out from the lean-to cottage which was concealed at the little church's eastern end. When he saw the bridled pony, he was surprised. He went quickly towards the entrance, with such rising feelings of anger and distress as might possess a lover whose secret lair was suddenly unmasked. When he was come round the northwest angle, he saw a figure that sat upon the threshold of the chapel and leaned against the door. He perceived it to be the form of a very weary woman, and a remark about damned tourists died stillborn. Instead, he approached and said to her very gently, That is Lancelot's attitude, but won't you come inside? The watcher took Constance's lips for his own purposes and whispered, Yes. Vera exclaimed with petulant relief, Oh, here's a man, how lovely. Tante, do ask him if we can't come in and have some tea. The man said, Poor child, of course you shall be fed. And then he put his hand to an inconspicuous boss, pressed it and opened the church door. He held it and allowed Constance to pass him, followed her and knelt upon the ground, an act which at once made Miss Tyrell feel awkward and obtrusive. But before she had time to digest these unpleasant emotions, an amazing thing happened. A force stronger than herself brought her, too, to her knees, and to an act of profound, though involuntary, adoration. She knew not what she worshipped, but knew that worship she must. The hushed voice of the watcher whispered within her, It is the idea. She could not rise. She forgot to be self-conscious. She knew only that her weariness was strangely healed. When she had knelt with bowed head for a few moments, feeling the unseen waves beating upon her brow, she looked up and saw that she was in a plain and oblong chamber, built of rough stones and floored with beaten earth. There were in it no pews, no place for priest and choir, none of the customary conveniences of piety. Hence the attention, undistracted, ran straight to the essential point, to the one object which lifted the sanctuary from a squalid desolation to an ordered austerity. There was at the eastern end a little table, and on it a red brocaded cloth, heavy like a pole, and touching the ground. This table bore no crucifix, no flowers, no candles, so that Constance said to herself, If this place is Church of England, it must be very low. But on the simple altar there was a curious metal case, a silver inlaid with plated patterns, angels, and mysterious animals, whose wings were made of enamels, gems, and gold. 
the doors of it stood open, so that one looked within as into a little shrine. Inside there was a rough glass cup without a base, and with one clumsy handle. A kitchen teacup might have provided its model, but not the strange sheen of purple, black, and gold which ran through the glass. With sudden and inappropriate memories of South Kensington, she said to herself, Phoenician, I am sure of it. But what is it doing here? Then she perceived that this antique vessel was the thing to which she knelt, the link with eternity which her lodger adored. Even whilst she fought its influence and speculated upon its meaning, it cast its spells upon her soul. There was nothing else within the chapel, unless it were the lighted wick in its clay saucer which had guided them to this place. Centuries slid from her, and she found herself united to the primitive worship of the hills. Outside in the dusk, those hills and their inhabitants were gathering, brooding above the chapel, as if they would guard its enigmatic treasure from the peering vision of the modern world. Within, she, a daughter of that world, little suited to such company and such rites, knelt with a man and a spirit who had been caught into some ecstatic and unheard-of communion by a symbol which only invoked in her the vague sensations of wonder, of desire, and of unrest. She glanced at the man. He still knelt at her side and had clearly forgotten that she was there, a circumstance which contradicted all that she knew of human life. He gazed at the glass cup with an ardent love, which was without a taint of fatuousness. His glance pierced through it to something beyond, clearly seen and intimately known. He was young, spare, vivid, superbly alive. There was a sudden shriek from the doorway behind them, and Vera cried in panic, "'Oh, get up and speak to me quick! Tanta, it's lonely, it's queer! There's dreadful boogies in the hills! I, I hate your nasty prayers! I want my tea!' He instantly rose to his feet and said, "'Come, we are forgetting. There's the child to be fed.' She followed him from the chapel with an unwillingness that she could not understand. When they were in the two-roomed cottage and he was cutting bread and setting milk to boil, he said to her, "'You are the first that has come.' She replied, "'We lost our way and wrecked the cart, and then we saw your light upon the hill.' He said, "'That may have been the manner of it, but it could not be the cause.' and because she looked at him strangely, he added, "'Surely you know what it is you have seen to-night?' She answered, "'No, but I think it was real and mattered very much.' "'Real?' he said. "'I should think so. In the last resort it is our earnest of the only thing that matters, the transcendent link with reality. You, no less than Parsifal, have looked upon the Holy Grail.' She gazed at him in amazement, and the feeble voice of common sense muttered that he must certainly be mad, or at least a hysteric of the religious type. He caught her eye, laughed at her, and said, Oh, yes, of course all-knowing people would think I was insane, but you cannot, because you knelt down. I didn't do it on purpose. All the better. That counts one to us. To us? Yes, to the angel's side she said tentatively, for, of course, it might be desirable to humor him. Oh, but it can't be, you know, at least not really, 
It's absurd, incredible, and besides, how could you possibly be sure? There was an alarming note of obstinacy in his reply. No one can doubt who has experienced the power of great relics, and this is the mightiest relic of them all. And besides, there is tradition, and I am those who hold that tradition may be misread, but cannot lie. Here, you know, in the Westmoreland hills, was the last stronghold of the Celtic church. Here my predecessors in her priesthood lingered with their treasures and their rites, long after Italian bishops came to the north, and the Isle of Saints was saintless, and the great monastic hives had been dispersed. With them was hid, adored, kept safe, the lost key of the Middle Ages, that grail which was sought by all the chivalry of God sought mystically, and also sought actually, because of the undying tradition of its loss. But now? But now, he exclaimed, it was given to me, me, the meanest of its lovers, to find, hold, and cherish. Never mind how. Grace did it, and that is enough. Has any man of our generation a dearer destiny, do you think? I am permitted to stand sentinel between it and a world that would not understand. We must keep our realities safe where we are able, from moth and rust, from thieves that break in and steal, worse, from possible museums. There are certain things spread up and down the world, you know, which enshrine the only secret and keep it safe. These are the most sacred of all trusts, and all who have eyes to see them are born to their guardianship. Some are in good hands, Others are of such a nature that they cannot be perceived by those who do not love, and therefore they will never be profaned. But some are known only at their own peril. I have brought one such here to hide it. It is safe in the bosom of our hills, in the nest which has hid it so long. He went to a cupboard, brought cups and plates, and gave them warm milk, bread and butter, and oat cake. Miss Tyrell looked at the little neat commonplace cottage, and then at this eager man with hot blue eyes who spoke the language of fairyland with fervor and conviction. Side by side with her rebellious reason, the spirit of the watcher looked out on this new slice of experience, and he, she perceived, had left his perennial aspect of astonishment. He seemed as one who, sojourning in barbarous lands where all is bizarre and difficult to accept, suddenly hears the dear accents of home. More, here's something, someone, whose presence in that home had long been desired, long needed, but never attained. They were within the field of some mighty and spiritual magnet whose powers transcended time and space. She had always eluded dogma with an agility which she doubtless owed to her excellent education. But here, in this crevice of the hills, was something which she could not elude. The watcher cried in ecstasy, The real, the real! She raised her head with the gesture of a trapped and frightened thing, and again the man laughed. Tiresome, is it not, he said, but inevitable, I assure you, you had better acquiesce. The finger of God is not to be escaped. It pursues, it caresses, it touches where it will. It was the old and hateful message, God is not mocked. He was not. He had met her in the city. He had chased her to the hills. He waited 
inexorable behind the veil. Here there was a rent in that veil, and through it a hand was stretched forth, which offered her a gift. She was too far away to see the wound upon that generous hand, and as for the gift, a woman of her superior intelligence could only look upon it as the fruit of a fantastic, even perverse, imagination. It was merely a cup of rough glass, curiously iridescent and stained with the colors of an imperial grief. End of chapter 10